Please look with me again at Romans 8, and we will look at verses 33 and 34. And I'll read them and encourage you that we all together look to God and and ask him for his spirit and for for grace to apprehend, appropriate, and apply what God is saying to us in these verses. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's pray together. Lord, please come. Uh, we ask you again, come in the person and, and in the power, the very real presence of your spirit, and open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to behold wonderful things in your law. Lord Jesus, you've given us your word, but without the gift of your spirit, We can't make any progress in knowing it and living it. And so please come and help us, we ask in your name, so that from our hearts we might praise you as you are worthy to be praised. Hear us, we ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. We could probably spend um, the rest of our lives in these two verses, um, and and actually we should spend the rest of our lives in these two verses. Maybe not in terms of of understanding at the the level of intellect or or rationality or reasoning, uh, but but at the experiential level, at the level of our day-to-day existence as Christians. I don't know if you've gone through this letter. Here's a, here's a homework assignment for you that involves a little bit more than just reading. It involves counting. I don't know how many times Paul mentions the word, uses the word justification and its related words in this letter, but it's a bunch And I'd love for you to come back and tell me next week how many times you found him to be using this word. It is a ginormous word in Paul's thinking, in his understanding of the gospel. And it comes up again in the midst of these questions that he's asking as he brings this portion of this letter to a conclusion. And he's He's at the point, believe it or not, he's at the point of application in these verses. Now, if you've been around um, evangelical Christianity for as long as I have, which is about 40 years or more, or, or just maybe four months or maybe 14 months or 14 years, perhaps you've been around an approach to the teaching of Scripture which, which runs something like this. Here's, a, here's a, an, an inductive Bible study method I learned early on in the Christian life. What does it say 
What does it mean? What does it mean to me? And very often, the what does it mean to me part of that inductive Bible study method, the application aspect of Bible study method, very, very often the application gets reduced to shoe leather stuff, to what I do with my hands and my feet. It it gets down to the imperatives. Okay, I've heard this. I think I understand this. Now what do I do with this? And folks, here's what I want you to understand. I want you to see the... I've alluded to this before, mentioned it before, but I want you to see it again. That when the apostle gets down to the business of application, what do I do with this? What he wants us to do before we do anything is think very, very deeply about what it is that he said. We are almost at the end of the 8th chapter. We have 9, 10, and 11 to go before we get to chapter 12. And when we get to chapter 12, we will get to the shoe leather stuff. We will get to the what you do with your hands and what you do with your feet stuff. But do you recall that up to this point in Paul's writing to the Romans, there have been no indicatives, I'm sorry, no imperatives except for two? Meaning he has not admonished us to do anything up to this point except reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. See, this is a fundamental problem in my understanding with where American Christianity is. We're all about doing. And we are missing the deep, profound, life-changing applications of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its truths to our souls, to our hearts. And Paul won't let us do that. That's where he is in these verses. He's at the point of application. He's bringing this portion of the argument to a conclusion. And what is he asking us to do? He's asking us to think and reflect. He's asking us to drill down very deeply into the things that he said. And why is he asking us to do that? One simple reason out of which all of the other living of the Christian life comes. God's people need assurance. God's people need assurance. God's people need the assurance that God's love will not fail them. God's people need the assurance that God's purpose will not fail. God's people need the assurance that God's power will not fail. God's people needs the assurance, need the assurance that God is up to the task in every respect. God's people need the assurance that when God sets out to do something, He will do it and nothing will stop him from accomplishing what he sets out to do. That's what, you need to, that's what you need to know this morning. 
That's why I say there's a sense in which I could spend the rest of my ministry life, we could spend the rest of our lives in these two verses, because every Sunday morning when I come to this place, what I need to know is that God's love will not fail. God's purpose will not fail and God's power will not fail. And he is up to the task of accomplishing what he sets out to accomplish. And why is that? Why do I need to hear that? Why do you need to hear that? Why am I back in these verses after having been in them last week? Just retrace your steps just very quickly. You don't have to go back any farther than verse 26. Why do I need this summary, this attempt of Paul in these verses to press this stuff deeply into my soul, to get me to stop and think and reflect? Why? Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. You're weak. I'm not. I'm a pastor. I'm strong. I'm larger than life. I've got this figured out. That's why I'm qualified to be up here, and you're disqualified from being up here, and qualified only to be out there. My good friend Ray is shaking his head, because he knows what you know. I have a friend who says the only thing that qualifies me for pastoral office is that I'm a bigger repenter. And he views himself as the chief repenter, first in his family and then among the people whom he serves. Weakness. Why do you need to be reminded of these things? Because you're weak. Look, I watched the Republican National Convention. I heard the speakers. I heard Paul Ryan say, we can do this. We can do this. We can do this. And I saw them trot all these Republican governors out there, Chris Christie, Nikki, Daly, Scott Walker, John Kasich, all of whom said, we did this. We did this. We did this. Look, I'm fine. I'm fine with strength and reviewing resumes in the political sphere, in the sphere of medicine, in the sphere of education. I'm fine. But when you cross that threshold and you come into this place, you come into God's space where Jesus is Lord and King, you leave all of that out there, and you come in here as desperately weak and needy people. Leave it in Tampa. Don't bring it into the church. Go just a a bit farther up, verse 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time. Sufferings. Of this present time. Why do you need to hear these things? Because of suffering. Real suffering. Stuff that you endure. And go just a little bit farther up. Verse 13. 
If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you put to death the deeds of the body, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, hand-to-hand combat, a sword, mortifying, killing, putting something to death. Who trivializes these things? Not the Apostle Paul. Why do you need to hear these things week after week after week? Because you're weak. Because of sufferings. Because of the misdeeds of the body that you struggle against and which have to be put to death. And if you bump back up to chapter 7 and you rehearse and you think through Paul's own acknowledgement of his own incredible weakness, his own incredible struggle, and his failure, the reason you need to hear these things again and again and again, four reasons. You're weak. You're in the midst of sufferings. You're in a fight and you fail. You fail. And what you need to know in the midst of all of that, what you need to know is that God's love for you will never fail. His purpose to save you will not fail. His power to save you will not fail. He will accomplish what he has set out to do. Will any of these things fail? Will God in any way fail? They will not. He will not. He will not. They will not. And that is especially, it seems to me, what Paul is pressing home to us and arguing for in these verses, verses 33 to 34. Again, he's applying the reality, the truth, and especially the critical significance of our justification. And what is our justification? What is your justification? Justification is this staggering, unbelievable. I mean, what did John Newton write? Oh, interesting grace, how sweet the sound. How intellectually compelling is this grace that saved a wretch like me? Amazing grace. What is so stunning and so staggering in this doctrine of justification is that I am declared innocent. Innocent with respect to all of the charges that are brought against me. And not only am I Declared innocent, but I am declared positively righteous. Innocent and not guilty, but positively righteous and therefore perfectly and entirely accepted by God. That's what your justification is. That's what Paul is pressing home here. That's what he wants us to see. So in the little bit of time, after I've told you what I'm going to tell you, now let me tell you what I've just told you that I was going to tell you, and then we'll work out some implications, some conclusions from all of it. Let me just rehearse for you the logic of what it is that Paul is saying here again in verse 33 and then on into verse 34. 
Here we are, right? Here we are in the midst of this, acknowledging our very great weakness, very real sufferings, acknowledging that we are in a fight. It is the fight of our lives, acknowledging if we will listen to Paul and use Paul as our model, acknowledging that we fall, that we fail. Here we are with all of this. Here we are with all of these voices screaming in our heads. Look, I've talked with you. Not all of you. Not as fully as I would like. But you've all got tapes. You've all got voices. You've got your conscience. You've got your parents. You've got the culture. You've got the devil of hell. And one of those voices in the midst of all of those voices is the Holy Spirit. One of the tricks of the Christian life is distinguishing and differentiating the voice you ought to listen to from the voices you shouldn't listen to. But they're all there. And those voices are filled with accusations, aren't they? They're filled with information about you. And what is Paul saying here? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Now, the word that's used in the text is used often in the New Testament to describe, in effect, a courtroom scene. That's what we pointed out last week. It's a courtroom scene. You've been arraigned. You've been brought before the judge. You are Jean Valjean. You've stolen the silver. You've struck the priest without regard for his life. Who shall bring a charge? Here's the first point, the first thing that I tried to emphasize last week. There are charges. If there weren't charges, it wouldn't be an issue. There are charges. And the charges, the charges are not irrelevant and the charges are not illegitimate. And they come at us from all over the place, but they are not trumped up charges. They are not illegitimate charges. They're not imagined charges. But here's the second thing. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? At a very, very practical, personal, day-to-day level. Not in a technical fashion. Let me suggest to you what it is the Apostle is saying here. What he's saying is this, in this context, it's basically this, it is essentially this, the charges are real, but do you see, they can't be laid to the account of the elect. The charges are real, but they can't be laid to the account of the elect because God has taken it upon himself to stand between the charges and the one being charged. That's what the priest did for Jean Valjean. He stood between the gendarme and the legitimate charge of theft and personal assault brought against him. The elect, who are they? I'm rehearsing stuff I know. But let's get the logic of this thing. The elect are those whom God has foreloved. This is verses 28, 29, and 30. 
The elect are those whom God has foreknown, which means that he has foreloved them. The elect are those whom he has predestined to be remade, to be restored, to be recreated after the image of Jesus Christ. And those whom he foreknew and having predestined, he then called And those whom he called, he then justified. And those whom he justified, he then glorified. You see what God is doing. You see what Paul is doing. The charges are there. The charges are real. But God has taken it upon himself to choose those between whom and the charges legitimately brought against them, He will stand. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Grounded in God's eternal love and purpose to redeem particular sinners. And having loved them and chosen them and predestined them to this glorious end, that they be restored and recast and refashioned, and renovated, and made like Jesus Christ, He then in time calls them. And then having called them, He justifies them. And notice what He does. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You see, He jumps, and I think I, think I was unclear about this last week, and it's troubled me all week. In in part because I want you to know that I'm clear and rational, and you can trust me. But in part because I don't want you to be confused about this. I want you to see it's almost like a knee-jerk reaction. When Paul thinks about charges, and he thinks about this invading grace of God, where God gets himself between charges and the execution of punishment and judgment against those who ought to be punished. And judged. He can't help but go immediately to justification. It is God who justifies. And what does God do in justification? We've already talked about it. He declares innocent those who in the face of the law are not innocent, but rather guilty. And beyond that, declares them positively righteous. But notice, he's not finished. Notice he's not finished. He has to go from justification to the ground of that justification. See, here's the thing. This is the interesting thing about Les Miserables. I love the book. I read the book. I don't know if any of you have read the book. 1,400 pages. 150 pages on the sewer system underneath the city of Paris. Laborious stuff. Here's the thing about Les Miserables. And I love the the Liam Neeson film. And I love the stage play, the musical. And I love the scene in which Valjean is set free by the priest. And I love how the impact of tasting grace changes his life, recalibrates everything in him. That's all gospel stuff. But here's the thing. The fact is 
the charge is still out there. The charge is still out there. The priest can buy his soul with silver. Valjean can have his life recalibrated by the mercy extended to him by the priest. Javert can kill himself at the end of the story and the threat of Javert pressing charges is removed. But, but, he is still a convict who has violated his parole. And the next Javert, because the charge is still there, the next Javert can track him down. And prosecute the case against him. Do you see what Paul is doing here? Charges are real. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Those whom God in the wisdom of his providence and goodness and mercy has been pleased to love. And then call and then justify, declare innocent. You see what Paul is doing? He is jumping from the declaration of innocence, the declaration of positive righteousness. He is jumping from that to the ground. The ground of that justification. See, this isn't, this isn't a whimsy. This is not God the just arbitrarily saying of this one or that one or the other one, I'm simply not going to press the charges against you. Oh no. Who is there to condemn? It is Jesus Christ who has died. Yes, even who was raised and who is now at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. You see what he's doing? He's saying, charges, yes. Condemnation, no. Why not? Because the charges have been laid to the account of another. And because that one came into the world for the express purpose of living a life of obedience in order to die a substitutionary death, wherein... All of the charges, legitimate charges that can be brought against me are laid upon Him to His account so that God may say, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, innocent of all the charges, positively righteous, reconciled, accepted, By a holy and righteous God. Charges, yes. Condemnation, no. Because Christ has been condemned in my place. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm thinking through this this week. I'm wrestling with all of this. I'm trying to think how this applies to me. And then I remember. I remember this illustration which I've shared with you before from Martin Luther. And how, and how Luther envisions this conversation between himself and the devil. And the devil says to Martin Luther, you are a sinner and you stand condemned. And Luther says, no, no, no. And the devil says, yes, yes, yes. 
And the devil begins to bring up all of the charges that can be brought against him. And Luther's response is to say to the devil, Ah, devil, listen to this. Every charge you bring against me becomes a sword with which I slit your throat. Because every charge that you bring against me, or that a person brings against me, or that even the Holy Spirit, who does know every thought and every intention of my heart, every charge which in the case of the Holy Spirit is a conviction, every charge that might be brought against me becomes a reminder to me of my Savior Jesus, who bore the penalty of God's wrath in my place, suffering the consequence of that particular charge. Do you see this? You see, for me, for me to be confronted with my own sin becomes honestly and truly a moment of great rejoicing. A moment of great rejoicing. Because in that moment where I see myself as I really am, I need not be crushed. I run again to Jesus. That's what Paul does here. Charges brought against God's elect. It is God who justifies. And here is the ground. There is a basis upon which God may declare you innocent. And positively righteous in his sight. All of, it, all of this work of Jesus, this death on the cross, receives its vindication and validation by the resurrection. Paul has to mention the resurrection because if Jesus died and is still in the ground, he's just another dead man. But he is not just another dead man. In fact, he is not a dead man at all. He is an alive man, and his resurrection validates and vindicates his work in your behalf so that you, this moment, no matter what voices are screaming into your head, grabbing for your heart, seeking to possess you and hold you in a cage and prison of condemnation and fear, those voices may be responded to, Ah, but there is Jesus. There is Jesus. So what are the implications or some observations to be made very quickly? Please observe this. Please observe this. Who is the active agent in all of this? Who is the initiator in all of this? Who is the accomplisher in all of this? Who is the author and finisher of your faith from beginning to end, start to finish, from the mystery of God sovereignly loving particular sinners and choosing them to be conformed to the image of his son, being rescued out of bondage and sin and despair and the threat of judgment? From that point to calling and justifying and sanctifying and glorifying, the initiative is all from God. It is God who initiates. It is God who justifies. It is God who glorifies. And every step along the way, it is God. Remember this. 
your assurance in the midst of weakness, suffering, the battle, and your own failure, your assurance is grounded upon God's eternal love for you and not your faith. If your assurance is grounded upon your faith, your assurance will fluctuate like your faith. When your faith is up, your assurance will be strong. When your faith is down, your assurance will be weak. Paul grounds your assurance upon God himself, his love, his purposes, and his power. And second, why is this important? Because wrath is real. This is important because wrath is real. In my Bible reading, I'm reading Joel. I read Joel this last week. And one of the themes in Joel's prophecy is the theme of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Listen to this, folks. Listen to it humbly with sobriety. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Joel 2, verses 1 and 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness spread upon the mountains. Joel 3, verse 2. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. I will gather all the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat. What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is the last day. The day of the Lord is the day when the Lord God Almighty, omnipotent, who is currently ruling and reigning over all things for the sake of his church, it is the day when he makes his appearing. It is the day when he enters into judgment with the nations. And please understand that nations are not abstractions. Nations are made up of the people who populate those nations. God will enter into judgment with the nations and with every individual making up the nations of the world across the whole of human history. That is the day of the Lord. And I I, I suppose this requires another sermon or some comment. 
But if the idea of the day of the Lord and God entering into judgment as a holy and righteous judge, if that troubles you, please pray and struggle to find assurance in this notion because what this is is a reflection of the fact that God is good and he is just and he is righteous and he will suffer no injustice, no unrighteousness to go un. Punished, And that, my friends, is the kind of universe that you want to live in. It is the only kind of universe that makes any sense. A universe in which wrongs are righted and injustices are redressed. And God enters into judgment on the day of the Lord with the nations. Wrath, my friends, is real. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men. I'm not saying this to frighten you. You don't need to be frightened. You just need to be reminded. Wrath is real. And here is what happened at the cross. The future day of the Lord was intruded into present history and God visited his wrath and judgment upon his son so that you on the day of the Lord will pass through judgment. The day of the Lord came to Jerusalem in about 33 A.D. And isn't it interesting, the language that you find in Joel chapter 2. The day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The gospel writers note for us that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, the world was covered in darkness. And for the astute Jewish person, it was a reminder of Joel chapter 2. What I am witnessing is the visitation of the day of the Lord upon innocent Jesus as he dies a substitute for guilty sinners that they might be free of the threat of judgment. Wrath is real. You got the cross of its glory if you gut it of its wrath. It is wrath that was visited upon Jesus. Why is this important? I've intimated this. Why is this business of justification important? Because it magnifies the cross. Minimize wrath and you minimize the cross. And let me say this, at the personal level, the individual level, minimize the charges against you. Minimize the charges against you. And you've got the cross of its power. Minimize what may be rightly said about and to Mike Malone. If Mike 
Malone turns away from the law, refuses to stare into the mirror of the law that he might see himself as he really is and runs over to the other side of the ledger and tries to create some ledger of righteousness over here. What am I doing? I am gutting the cross of its glory and power. Every time I'm confronted with myself, it is an occasion for rejoicing, for going back to Jesus, and it is an occasion for magnifying the cross. And why is this important? Here's the fourth thing among many, many, many things that could be said. Why is this important? Why is understanding your justification so very important? Understanding that you are not guilty, understanding that you are positively righteous because of Christ, understanding that you are accepted, understanding that you have been loved with an everlasting love, a love that will never fail you, a purpose that will never fail you, a power that will not fail you. Why is it so important for you to understand this? Here is why. It is because God is after more than your forgiveness. He is after more than your forgiveness. He is after your complete and entire renovation. And when you and I are in the midst of the surgical procedure which the great physician performs on those whom he loves so that he might restore them, renovate them, and bring them into conformity with the image of Jesus Christ, the thing that you will be inclined to think is that God hates you, not that he loves you. You will think that. But if you speak to that voice in your head and you say, "Ah, no, it's not about me, it's about the cross, and God has made clear to me that the cross is simply an expression of an eternal love which He set on me from before the foundation of the world. He has given me His Son. How will He not also in Him, just as freely, give me all things? If I preach that sermon to myself, even though my body, my soul, everything about me, my circumstances may cry out, God doesn't love me, he hates me, you will be able to speak to that voice and say, no, there is the cross. And what God is doing in my life is this glorious surgical procedure of eradicating a cancer and bringing healing and restoration to the totality of my life. You need to know that you are accepted in the beloved, justified and that there is no threat of condemnation for you, ever. I had two conversations this last week with two people in a lot of trouble. One of them not broken enough, the other, it seemed to me, deeply broken. To the one who was deeply broken, I felt like I had something to say. This, this is the beginning for you. This is not the worst day of your life. This is the best day. Because God in mercy, finally stripping away, forgive me, all of the crap that you have entrusted yourself to across all of these years, having stripped all of that away, 
is now beginning the work of renovation that will lead you to conformity with the image of his beautiful son. It's the best day, not the worst day of your life. That's my story. And I believe it's God's story. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, with these things, would you encourage the hearts of your people? Would you encourage the hearts of your people? Lord, you know they've been hurt. You know they've been wounded. You know they feel flayed, overcome, helpless, weak. You know that they've fallen, said and done unbelievably stupid things. But would you, with your voice of loving comfort, would you dispel all of those other voices and speak your peace into the hearts of these, your beloved children. For Jesus' sake, amen.